Hi, I'm Jules Hamilton, and this is the Good Summer Podcast, Keeping It Good. It's a chance for all of us to hear stories of people making a positive change in the world. The Good Summit is a space of gathering to celebrate common good in the world and to cultivate more of it. Join the Tribe of Good by signing up to our mailing list at thegoodsummit.com and learn where our latest gatherings are taking place, who is going to be there, and how you can get involved. Help us help you make the world a better place. Today on Keeping It Good, as Senior Ireland Correspondent for Sky News, award-winning journalist David Blevins has been on our screens for over 25 years, covering news stories from all over the island of Ireland. From the Good Friday Agreement, through the decommissioning of IRA weapons, the Queen's historic visit to Ireland, and more recently on how Brexit and COVID-19 are impacting life. David has a rare ability among journalists. He captivates those being questioned with disarming honesty and authenticity. He brings out the real stories from real people. He is highly thought of by people and politicians from all walks of life. David is also a musician and a proud grandfather. And maybe even more importantly to some, a key member of the Good Summit family, having participated in every Good Summit Ireland event to date. We hope he keeps coming back. We love him, and we know you do too. I am absolutely delighted to be sitting, socially distanced, beside one of my favourite human beings and I think one of the best news reporters on the island that I'm currently sitting on. I'm with Sky News' David Blevins, who has been a firm supporter of the Good Summit and the values and the work that we do from the very beginning. He actually, uh, we'll maybe talk about it, but he he gave the very first interview to anyone uh, in the Good Summit a couple of years ago whenever he sat with an audience for us, uh, uh, in front of an audience with Bertie Ahern, uh, which was a really lovely night. David, it is gorgeous to see you. Welcome to Keeping It Good, the Good Summit podcast. It is lovely to talk to you after that build-up. I hope I don't uh, uh, fail to meet your expectations. That was quite an introduction, but it's always really lovely to talk to you, Jules. Thank you, David. Um, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Tell us about, really, I suppose, to my mind, you've been a face of the news here for decades, um, but you're still a young man. How did you get in to wanting to tell people the news? What what desires live within you uh, to, to kind of to live and want to do that? Two things, really. My love for the English language, how it's used and abused all over the yeah, world. Yeah, here I'm going to be abusing it with you for the next half hour or so. <laughs> um, I am rubbish at maths, so it always was going to be something in the arts direction. And uh, I did a little bit. I always thought I would be an English teacher. But then I did a little bit of work experience at a radio station just over the border in County Louth when I was doing, between GCSEs or, dare I say, O-levels and A-levels back then. And I loved the adrenaline of the newsroom, The, the, the fact that everyone was collaborating together to be first to report the news. And there was just a real fire in that environment that inspired me that I want to pursue this career, find a way to not just um, 
pursue the truth, but to report it objectively and as quickly as possible. Pursue the truth. That sounds like almost a, a difficult thing to do in the world in which we're we're beginning to operate now. We'll we'll come back to that uh, because I want to go back to those early years. And specifically, could you have seen coming the life that you now lead uh, a couple of decades later? Not, not in a million years. I thought I would probably end up in a local newspaper office, which I did for two and a half years. If I was really fortunate, I could break into broadcasting and be on radio, which I did for five years. Uh, But I never imagined I would be reporting for Sky News with a potential global audience of 200 million people in 100 countries around the world. But far more than that, because you don't really think a lot about the audience when you're talking, the opportunity you have to witness history. And we have had just so many hugely symbolic and significant moments on this tiny little island during those 25 years almost that I've been at Sky to have an opportunity to witness that firsthand. There's, well, as Eamon Holmes often says, it beats working for a living. (laughs) What you guys do, um, it's a, it, it, it amazes me. Can I ask you, over those years, you, you really came in towards the, I was going to say towards the end of the Troubles, maybe the late 80s you started reporting. Um, there was maybe another 10 years of reporting in the Troubles as they were. But I always remember a famous BBC reporter, I'll not mention his name, but I knew his producer well. And pretty soon after the Good Friday Agreement, he, he, he hung up his microphone and he left the business. And I, I remember sending his producer shortly after that. Um, why, why did why did he retire? Sure, he was on the on the, the, the cusp of a wave. And his producer looked at me and said, sure, the story's over. And it always struck me as strange. I get the notion that, yeah, you know, okay, 30 years of violence in that sense was was coming to an end. But, oh, my goodness, the story on this island was not and is not over. What, what's your reaction to that sort of you, you can get to the end of the story type thing? Ireland has been a story for 800 years. Mm, yeah. Sometimes I suspect it will be a story for another 800 years, hopefully a different, more positive and hopeful story. But I don't know how anyone can say, really, that the story's over when you consider that we'd come from violence through ceasefires to a form of devolved government power sharing, this peace process lauded all over the world. And just four months later, you have the single largest atrocity of them all when the dissidents detonated a car bomb in Oma. So we thought it was over on Good Friday. It was far from over. Then in 2001, we thought it was over because 9-11 happened and the whole business of news became much more international and focused on international terrorism. But every time we have thought, well, that's the culmination of my career, something else comes along. You don't just get a power-sharing government, you get decommissioning of IRA weapons. You don't just get decommissioning, you get the historic visit of the British monarch to Irish soil. Um, For the first time, a British monarch standing in the Republic of Ireland. Um, I remember 
reporting on the day that it takes an art across the Irish Sea and it had taken the British monarchy a century. And then, when you think that's the culmination, along comes the heir to the throne, Prince Charles, to shake hands with Gerry Adams, the most recognisable Irish Republican uh, former leader of, uh, of Sinn Féin. And then you get the Queen herself shaking hands with Martin McGuinness, a former IRA commander. And then you get a shift in the power sharing arrangement where Martin McGuinness is sharing power with his arch enemy, Ian Paisley. The story's never over. Um, when we really saw those polar opposite parties in government together, you could have decided it's time to close the book. But then you get an electorate that decides to vote for Brexit and the book is far from closed. <laughs> Do you know what? Until your last 10 seconds there, the way you let everything out, David, was a beautiful little, it was like word poetry of hope. It was like, you know, this thing happened and who would have thought that would have happened? And then this, and who would ever have foreseen that? And then this happened. And oh my goodness, you have, as you said, a front row seat to these incredible history, epoch-defining moments. Um. Where, and this is a, it's a difficult question for me to, to kind of, to put into the right words, but I'm really fascinated by how good you are with people. And yes, all of these stories have individuals and have people behind them. And I'm sure that you have got some key interviews with some key leading actors uh, on this stage and, and, and other stages across the world, uh, because you, you seem to have a way about you. Do you, do you think at the end of the day, even in something like journalism that is about reporting the truth as 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 honestly and with as much authenticity as you can. Do you think even, even at that level, so much of this boils down to humans being humans together and having positive relationships? Absolutely. I would say two things about that. And I say this modestly, I have been really privileged to have interviewed two US presidents, three Irish presidents, five British prime ministers and six Tishi Irish prime ministers. You never get sick of it then, no? People often ask you who left the greatest impression and the answer is none of them. Yes, it's a, an incredible privilege to talk to them, but the people who leave the impression are the ordinary people. When, you, wow. when you've been to Oma on the day of a horrific atrocity and 29 men, women and children are dead or dying in the high street. And you have to keep going back to tell their stories, to report their funerals, to get to know their families, to report their uh, effort to secure justice. You build relationships with people. And out of all of the stories I've covered, the one that resonates with me, the one that I think about when I put my head on the pillow at the end of the day is Oma, the bombing of Oma, because we formed a relationship with the people there, the bereaved and injured people like Michael Gallagher, who speaks so eloquently and graciously for the bereaved and injured of Oma. So those human stories are what resonate, but also it's the discovery along the way that politicians are people too no matter how high an office they hold, they are just human beings. And so I've discovered, you're very flattering to say I have a way with me, but I do consciously decide when I'm interviewing people not to conduct an aggressive interview because I don't believe it works. When you say to the prime minister, 
why haven't you resigned, Prime Minister? He or she just pulls their guard down immediately. You won't get the line that will be the lead story or the front page the next morning. Instead, there's another way to ask that question. Hi. Prime Minister, there are people out there who think you should have resigned. What do you say to those people? Okay. That's the same question, yeah. but it's not asked aggressively. And you're, in, you're encouraging them to bring you into their confidence a little. And that is what will deliver the line that will make people go, wow. 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 So do you, have you had to work on your guard? Because what you just did there was remove some of the guards that humans put up. And that's one of the things we do best. You know, we, ha- we have the ways that we all guard ourselves and you just totally disarmed, which is a great word to use in the context of Northern Irish politics, but you totally disarmed somebody there. How, did you have to think about that ahead of time and maybe even disarm your own kind of need for a particular reaction and but and just allow the person that you're interviewing to to be natural and be honest with themselves? Is that how you get people to be themselves by you deciding, well, actually, I have to be myself? I think that's right. I think perhaps the greatest danger in terms of arming yourself as a journalist is that you make the mistake of thinking you are the story. I know that's a bit of a cliche, but it's really important to recognise you're just the vehicle, really. And if we're going to uh, pursue the truth objectively and to report it with integrity, we've got to step back a little, take a little of ourselves, our own opinions out of the story. And that's part of the disarming process as well. Now, that doesn't mean that you switch off your heart and your head, because if you do, then you're not being authentic. Mm. You can't. We all bring a little of ourselves to whatever it is that we do. And that's why it really frustrates me when journalists in particular take a hammering for bringing a little of themselves to a story. As long as people recognise that that is opinion in that moment, you've got to make sure that you're presenting it as that and not as a factual um, content report. There is a difference between those two things. And that's where we've got terribly messed up in journalism in recent years. Can you say more about that? What what has been messed up in recent years? What, what are the challenges that... Uh, your tribe, if you like, are, are facing? There Again, there are two of them. I think it's US. I think it's Barack Obama normally speaks in threes. I'm giving you twos today. Um, one is uh, the business model is a real problem for us because advertisers used to seek um, really credible news sources because people would read those or watch those and that's where they would invest their money. Everything is driven by the algorithm now, and the algorithm produces clickbait uh, rather than credible news sources. And so that's really challenging, particularly in print media, but also in rolling television news. And and that's driven everything online. And there's a real danger in all of that around the business model. We need people to invest in, dare I say, good old-fashioned journalism principles via the new technology. I'm always really frustrated when I hear people say to young journalists or young people who want to be journalists, you've missed the golden age. They haven't missed the golden age. With the technology today, this has the potential to be the golden age if we can apply the old principles of, you know, truth and accuracy and balance and impartiality. Yes, a little bit of colour thrown in, of course. But if we can apply that to the new technology, this has the potential to be the golden age. Well, can I ask you, is Honestly, is it really possible to be impartial? 
Like, what does it mean to be impartial in a world where even sociologically and psychologically, you know, we, we sometimes can't even tell our own motivations. You know, you know, we bring so much with us into a conversation or an argument. How, how, what does it mean to be impartial when you say that? You can't be entirely right. impartial. I, I stand over the, the view that you're not authentic if you remove yourself completely. Mm. You, you, yeah. you just can't become that clinical. But I think it's about being honest about that. And we're, it's difficult to be honest right now because the whole attack on journalism has pushed us to a place where we're always defending the press. We're always defending the free press and its role in democracy and all the rest. And we know why, particularly during the last administration in the White House, um, there has been such an attack on the media that we find ourselves almost afraid to say, no, this is my view. Now, you can't express opinion. It's just got to be clearly presented as opinion. And there's a difference between that and the straightforward factual news report. So how do you, uh, in your role, how do you do that so well? And I've heard you do it really well, you know, in terms of the Irish story. But let's go back to the White House. How do you go up against, you know, um, just a complete abrogation of facts? You know, whenever whenever a journalistic opinion is is being criticised and facts are being ignored or, or facts that are, you know, there in black and white things that are sensational in the, the most literal possible sense. It's true because you can see, taste, hear, touch it, smell it, you know, scientific definitions of true, and they're just completely abrogated. What, what, what do you do whenever it's your profession to say, eh? All you can really do is keep calling it out for what it is. Uh, there have always been those who didn't like the facts. And that's, let's be clear, there are no alternative facts, as the White House likes to call them. But there are people who have questioned them because it didn't suit their narrative didn't suit their political persuasion. The real difficulty now is that those people have a platform called social media. And it's not just Johnny come lately sitting in his basement peddling his political view. It's people holding the highest office, not just in the land, but arguably in the on the globe mm. that are peddling this idea that there is an alternative to the fact that is being reported by the media. And that's very dangerous. I think it was Thomas Jefferson who said, if the speech attacks a free press, then you're listening to the words of a tyrant. That's why we've got to keep calling it out. Brilliant. And I'm glad you do. And it, it, it's probably worth saying that we're we're recording this just a little bit before there's a, a new incumbent coming to the White House. Uh, I'm I'm taking it as 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 for granted at this moment that whenever you're listening, there is a new incumbent in the White House, but there's always a little bit of a, a question mark. Uh, can I bring you back to this island, David? Um, can you, you have seen the worst of human actions and human attitudes in your reporting from Ireland around the world. How do you sleep at night when you need to tell the world about some of the most horrific things that humanity is capable of doing to each other. And, it, and it's a tough question, but 
you know, you know, what resources do you call upon to enable you to keep you able uh, to do your job in those sorts of circumstances? Again, it will sound like a cliche, but I just hold on to hope. I utterly believe that that good will prevail over evil in the end. That's what keeps me going in the really busy days of the troubles when I first entered journalism. And remember, I grew up in a part of Northern Ireland they describe as the murder triangle. So you can imagine how it felt for a young reporter who'd grown up in that environment to be reporting the breaking news that the IRA had declared a complete and unequivocal ceasefire and a month later, loyalism doing likewise. I I hold on to the hope that, and I suppose it's based largely on the fact that my own children have grown up in a very different Northern Ireland to the one I grew up in. Uh, my wife and I grew up watching pictures of bombs and bullets and rioting on the television news. I described it recently as my memory of growing up watching the news was a screen filled with pictures of smoke. And it wasn't because the the technology wasn't as good as because the streets were filled with smoke morning, noon and night. You know, shootings, bombings, funerals and relentless cycle. And we were so busy, you didn't have time to process it when I was first in journalism. Um, people asked me, was I not afraid in the middle of very intense riots? And I was at times. And and when loyalism and, and the IRA were at the height of their violent campaigns, it was very frightening at times. But the adrenaline of having to get the story and report the story overcame the fear. And to some extent, we're only now in journalism and in, in Ireland beginning to process what that meant for us. And there is a fantastic book being published in 2021 called Breaking, which a number of us in journalism have each contributed a chapter to. And I've written one of those chapters. And it's about that whole business of how you how you learn to live and put your head on the pillow at the end of the night, having seen some of those things. This podcast is proudly supported by the amazing folks at Thought Collective, a team of designers and developers who create brands and digital products to captivate the crowd and communicate effectively. They make the Good Summit look great. Check them out at www.thoughtcollective.com. So you're a man of hope, that that kind of belief that what you see now is not the end of the story. Um, you know, and I love that, you know, sense of actually at the end of the day, um, evil will not overcome good. That that holding on in a position like yours to the inherent goodness and that we see around us and within us, I, I think is a I think that's a beautiful thing. Uh for people listening, wanting to hold on to that sense of, you know what? Uh, this this is worth it. Looking around the world, seeing environmental challenge, seeing political challenge, seeing the widening social gaps. What other things would, would you encourage people with to, to keep on sticking at it? Fight the good fight, if you like. I suppose we're really privileged in Northern Ireland because we really have witnessed the unthinkable. No one imagined the terrorist organisations would decide that there was an, a political uh, way to achieve their objectives. No one imagined you know, members of the royal family would come and shake hands with former you know, chiefs of staff of the IRA. 
No one imagined tiny little Northern Ireland would host the G8 Summit of World Leaders because they all wanted to, you know, claim a little bit of the action because the success of our peace process was being lauded around the world. So when you've gone from the moment where you are witnessing a street filled with horror in the aftermath of an explosion, men, women and children dead or dying in that street, to witnessing the moment when polar opposite political players, the Reverend Ian Paisley and Martin McGuinness, are not just sharing power, but are clearly building a friendship. You've got to believe that anything is possible. That's, I think, what gives us hope. And we're privileged in Northern Ireland because we've had a front row seat on that. And and is that one of the things that whenever you have the more difficult days, you just recall to mind what you actually have seen happen? You know? Yes. And again, I think we're privileged as journalists because we get to see behind the scenes as well. Politicians do have a television face. They do have a microphone uh, voice where they play to their constituents. We get to see them in the canteen at Parliament Building Stormont, drinking coffee together in quiet corners. Earlier this year, in the midst of the global pandemic, I was able to interview the First and Deputy First Ministers, their first joint interview since power sharing was restored in January. And they talked as human beings about how they had this shared experience of their mothers having both been ill during the pandemic, how they were missing their hairdresser, you know, human things. And I think that helps us as well to realise these people are as human as everybody else. They face the same challenges, they have the same worries. And knowing that what you see on your TV or read in your newspaper isn't always the reality behind the scenes gives me hope as well. Fantastic. Fantastic. David, um, you get, you know, a part of your role is that you, you have to bring the sensational stuff. You have to be where the crisis is. You have to report the hurt and the damage. Um, I don't know whether you think the other side of, things never gets a mention or you think it's it's it, it's the advertising dollars that that mean that you know good news things don't get out there as much but there there must have been some over the years that things that you've reported on or things that you've enjoyed that you're just like this is great i want people to to kind of to know what's happening here and and why what are some of the the good moments or the good people or the good things that, that you've had the the privilege of of hanging out at yeah, so there have been lots of them and I bad news does sell, but I often say I often point to C.S. Lewis and tell people don't believe nothing good ever came out of Belfast. Hmm. Uh, yeah. Belfast has gone from producing ships to producing world-class television drama like Game of Thrones and and we've done lots of work around Game of Thrones and got to meet the key players there and the dire wolves and everything else. And I just love that. Um, I've got to report the sort of tourism boom of this island as a result of the peace process. You know, people coming from Hawaii to ride the waves in County Donegal, which is just glorious. Or down the West Coast somewhere, Lynch. And and one of my favourite stories I think I've covered was around The Gathering, which was a big tourism project in Ireland 
few years ago, I think 2013. I, I remember it because I remember a brilliant advertising campaign around a gathering trying to bring the 70 million plus diaspora home to Ireland. And I looked at the posters and I thought, that's brilliant, but please just don't all come the same weekend. <laughs> we might run out of Guinness if you do. <laughs> and that would be quite a story if Ireland ran out of Guinness. But we really wanted to cover this gathering in a way that would sell across the world, that people would, would, would get it. And then we discovered that arguably our greatest export, his family were coming home for their gathering of the clan. And that was the descendants of John F. Kennedy. And it coincided with the 50th anniversary of his visit to New Ross in County Wexford. And his sisters, his cousins, their children, they all came for this huge event. And his daughter Caroline and his grandson came uh, to light an eternal flame with some of, they, they brought the flame from his grave in Arlington and with it they lit an eternal flame that is on the quayside at Wexford beside the replica famine wow. ship. It was a, an wow. incredible weekend where we got to basically hang out and chat and do lots of live television with the family of John F. Kennedy exploring how someone goes from a very poor family background in Wexford to the White House in the space of a generation and the as we say here, the crack was mighty and I loved that story. I really loved that weekend. We, that's the sort of story we should hopefully be able to tell more in the future if we could get rid of other things like a global pandemic and that thing called Brexit. Um, I, um, I wish I could remember the exact quote, but there was a thing that JFK said when he uh, addressed the Shannon, or maybe it was the, it was the, the joint meeting uh, of the Houses of Parliament in Dublin, and it was like we 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 need people who can believe that things don't have to be as they always were. That's not it exactly, but but it, it was a very very powerful statement of we need people who can dream and believe that more is possible and certainly at, at the good summit we uh we we want to inspire people and we want people to know that the things that we see around us at the minute doesn't have to be that way and we as individuals have responsibilities to make this world a, a much better place um david we're coming towards the end of our time but are there things that that you like to pass on to maybe you know young adult generations in, in terms of all of these things that you've seen some of the good news some of the horrific things you've talked about what uh, where you find hope, which I find really kind of moving. But can you take us just a little bit beyond, you know, you're you're still a young man, you're not retiring yet. What is the Ireland that you want to be reporting from for the next decade? What are the changes that you think are possible? And, and how can anybody listening know, how, how can all of us put our best foot forward to make some of those things happen? The Ireland I want to report from, the, the world I want to report from is... A world where we have figured out that bombastic soundbites like take back control, get Brexit done, oven ready deals, make America great again are no match 
for substantive political discourse, healthy conversations between people who have open hearts and open minds. And my fear has been through the last four years of a Trump presidency and post the Brexit referendum that we are encouraging our young people to to be polarised and to lose the ability to hear an alternative viewpoint and to consider it genuinely and to engage with that person graciously without having to say, I'm always right, you're always wrong. And for me, we just got to lose the bombast, the sound bites, the analogies about World War II. That's not where we want to go back to. We want to move forward and we want to do that together. And I just would encourage young people to find someone with whom they totally disagree and take them for a cup of coffee and have a chat. I was just going to ask and say, how do you do that? How how can you begin to diminish this us and them? Because in some real sense, that's human nature. We are not all the same. Uh, And there's a way to recognise that positively. We may not all be the same, but we are all better together. You know, we bring different... Uh, different tribes and different experiences and different resources. When everybody brings what they have, then we are better together. And I love that notion of someone who you disagree with and have a cup of coffee and have a conversation. Who are the people that you have met or given an interview uh, with who have struck you as been able to do that? And what is it that they hold within them that you think really really shows that gift of being able to, to to diminish the us and them? It, it's a really interesting question because I have recorded another podcast recently for Sky. Uh, in 2021, Sky is looking back at the what they regard as the 21 biggest stories of the first 21 years of this millennium. Wow. And one of them is the decommissioning of IRA weapons. So you know who I'm going to say. I do. Harold Good. Yeah. Is the man who's been able to do that. And on the Good Summit website, there is a, a little five-minute interview with, with Harold Good talking about this. So, uh, yeah, please tell us more. So we've spent some time in, in the last month talking to Harold Good about all of that. Um in a really interesting way, because he is limited in what he can say about the event of IRA decommissioning, we have explored with him the build-up to it in a a really fascinating way. Um, How do you choose what you're going to wear the day you're witnessing IRA decommissioning? What do you have for breakfast? Do you have a conversation with your God that morning? That kind of approach. And the podcast actually ends with him kind of at the edge of the moment he's about to witness decommissioning. I think it'll be worth listening to when it comes. But his ability to take the horror he had witnessed both during his time in America and during his ministry in Northern Ireland and see beyond the politics and to see beyond what the IRA called the armed struggle and just see people. So see beyond the politics and see the people. That's what I think Harold was able to do and to do it with courage. That's what it takes, I think. When people, when I say find someone you disagree with, take them for a cup of coffee, 
be as interested in what kind of coffee they drink as you are in what their political viewpoint might be. Mm. Get to know the person. I think that's what I'm talking about. We're back to disarming again, aren't we? Um, inviting people to remove some of the the walls that, that we have built up around ourselves and around our own families and communities. Um, is it true, David, is it still true that we have more walls in Belfast now than we have whenever the Good Friday Agreement uh, was signed? It is true. I know there are people working hard on it. I hope more walls will come down in 2021. But it is one of the difficulties of our peace process in that we've got a form of government that's called mandatory coalition, which kind of forces polar opposite parties to share power. And it was the only option available to Senator George Mitchell. I've had this conversation with George Mitchell about how long that can last. And he's been honest enough to tell me that it wasn't meant to last this long. But reconciliation has been painfully slow for Northern Ireland. But I don't give up hope because our young people, I think, continue to teach us that there's a better way ahead. I think of my own sons engaging in the Ulster Project, which has lasted for years, bringing Catholic and Protestant teenagers together, built on the premise of peace by peace. That's the sort of thing that gives me hope, that our young people will lead the way. Um, sometimes you hear really um, pessimistic views that there's a new generation who are attending Republican rallies, who are attending, you know, unionist, loyalist marches. I still think there's a greater shift away from that kind of separation in society. And we see it in integrated education as well. My own younger son is in integrated college by his own choice. All of that comes together to encourage me that we will find a way to reconcile. It's just taking a little longer than we might have hoped. David, that's brilliant. I've got one or two more uh, quicker questions for you. But but you mentioned Harold Good, and uh, not only is, is he an old friend, uh, him and his family, I, I, I really, uh, really admire uh, the work that he has done and really enjoy being in his company and, and his presence. He actually, him and Father Alec Reed, the late Father Alec, uh, spoke at my graduation in Queen's University when, when, I, when I graduated with my master's. And he got up and he was giving the speech on behalf of both of them. And Harold got up and said, it's always wonderful to be with Father Alec anywhere. And on this occasion, it's just nice to be able to see where we actually are. A <laughs> uh, reference to the hoods that were put over their heads whenever they were driven to do the decommissioning. Yeah, wonderful stories. Uh, David, you mentioned your, your, your sons uh, and you mentioned your family. I know, I know that family is one of those places where you go to really... Um, get over the day sometimes that you've had and, and kind of treasured. So another few kind of, uh, I'm going to give you, I'm going to give you notice. I'm going to ask you a couple of quick questions and then I'm going to ask you to tell us about one of the people that really struck you. Cause you said some of those really famous people are not the ones that struck you. Uh, and it's ordinary people with ordinary lives telling their stories and how they keep going, if you like, that has inspired you. But I want I want you to tell us about one of the famous people that maybe made you laugh or somebody you thought was, you thought they would be one way and they turned about to be completely different from, from what you thought. Uh, so I'm giving you about four seconds to think of someone like that. <laughs> or we, we can edit out the 20 minutes that, that you might need. Uh, but, 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 but before we do that, um, your favourite movie? 
Shawshank Redemption. Wow. What about your famous Christmas movie? I watched recently for the very first time. It's a wonderful life and it's a fantastic Christmas Isn't movie. Isn't it? What about favourite band? My favourite band is probably... Oh, let me think about that. That's a really hard question because there's about five. You two might just edge it. Uh, edge it. Very good. Uh, <laughs> and what about, what about your favourite meal? Well, my favourite meal is anything involving curry. And my wife knows that. I'm, I just love curry. I'll look, right, I'll look forward to coming around for some curry sometime soon. Uh, David, one of the interviews of people that you, you, you're never going to forget, you know, one of, one of the moments that always makes you smile. It's a real moment of hope. And it was in the moment of despair. And I know lots of those interviews have been done. The one people remember most was Gordon Wilson. Mm. But I had a very similar moment with a family whose son had been shot dead during, at the height of the siege of Drumcree, when there was a great dispute over an orange parade in my hometown of Portadown, there was a Catholic taxi driver, a guy who had just graduated from university, was earning a few pounds that summer taxi driving, and he was murdered by loyalists. And his family, his parents gave me an interview. They were from a Catholic community in Lurgan. They belonged to St. Anthony's Church there, and I discovered they were really involved in humanitarian aid in a really socially deprived part of Lurgan and that they'd been involved in humanitarian aid to um, Eastern Europe as well. And when I asked them what they would say to their son's killers, without missing a beat, uh, Michael McGoldrick's father said, I forgive them and I pray for them and I want them to know those things because this isn't the way we're going to build the future. That interview will remain with me forever. When you're looking into the eyes of someone who has just lost their child and they're telling you they forgive the person who pulled the trigger, there is no, there are no words to describe that. And that's, that's the moment. David, that moment will live with you. And now it's also going to live with us. Thank you so, so much for sharing your learning, your experiences and your heart in the midst of an incredible world that we have seen over the last couple of decades. Don't go too far away, sir. We, we need the likes of you sticking around for a while longer. David Blevins, thank you so much. This has been the Good Summit podcast. Brought to you in conjunction with Forfi. It was produced by Lee McMahon with Eva McNulty for The Good Summit. Music was provided by the fabulous Ian Archer. Stay connected with us on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram at The Good Summit and find out all you need to know on www.thegoodsummit.com and come back and join us again next time. Till then, go forth. Do some good. Peace to you and to the world. world.